Our special guest in this episode is a certified expert with more than 50 years of experience in the surety bond industry. In fact, his expertise has earned him the respect and trust of those in the surety and construction businesses as one of the foremost surety bond professionals in the country. In addition, he has been actively involved in the construction management program at FIU, Florida International University, for nearly 30 years, with eight of those years as an adjunct professor for the construction management school. My dear friends, please help me welcome Mr. Charles Nielsen, president of Nielsen Hoover Group Companies. Well, thank you very much for being here in Traveling Construction, the podcast. I am very, very thrilled and very, very excited to have my friend, John Nielsen, my first bonding agent, uh, really. Uh, maybe I had somebody else before, but you you really have been the, what, a person that has been very impactful in our, in our company, Emilio and I. So thank you for your friendship and thank you for the impact that you have had in, in our industry. So can you please introduce yourself to our audience? My name is Charles Nielsen. The company that I am associated with is called Nielsen Hoover Company. We are the, for want of a better definition, the largest privately owned surety brokerage in the Southeast United States. Nielsen Hoover Company does nothing but provide surety credit to the construction industry and associated industries that may need surety credit. So we've been doing this for, I have been doing it in Florida for the last 55 years. So we're grateful to be here and appreciate uh, the invitation from Patricia and appreciate the fact that, you know, she's taking the time and making the effort to dispense the knowledge and information that she has to her guests and to her personal knowledge to those who are interested and can benefit from it. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. If it was for, I mean, it's not going to be for lack of talk. If we could, we could, we could have hours and hours of recording because there's so much to share, so much knowledge that you have. And so the, the challenge here is going to be what questions to ask. So for people to obtain, for, for a company or a person that says, I want to start my own construction company, for them to get surety bonding, what is it that you're looking for when someone goes to you, they haven't done that company? What's, what do you think is needed? Well, first of all, I think that you know what might be helpful, Patricia, is for those who have not been involved to sort of understand what the product is that we're really talking about, you know, and it's from a historical standpoint, I mean, surety ship is defined as a individual standing in for the credit of another person. In other words, you're guaranteeing someone else's performance, you're guaranteeing someone else's credit. There are a number of biblical references to surety ship, so it goes back thousands of years and basically what it would amount to is that an individual was putting some goods on a ship in England to ship across the Atlantic to the U.S. or to any place else or to India and there was some concern about that shipment getting there. So they would get or obtain the guarantee of someone else who had sufficient funds to guarantee that that process would take place. And that's a form of surety ship. For us here in the United States, it really began back in the 1800s. Towards the end of the 1800s, the government was obviously expanding. They were doing a lot of building. And there were issues from time to time about contracts, contractors that they were hiring, not paying their suppliers, not paying their laborers, not paying their subcontractors. And so the government, and of course, the, you couldn't put a lien on government property, so it left the suppliers, the contractors, the subcontractors, and the laborers without any basic recourse other than to sue the government. 
If they prevailed, then that meant the government had to pay for it twice. They paid the contractor once, and he didn't pay all of his subs, suppliers, and laborers. And now the government has to double dip and do it. They found that acceptable. So in 1896, they passed what was called the Hurt Act, which was a form of payment bonds required by the contractors. That act left much to be desired, but 1933, Congress passed what we all know as the Miller Act, which is the basis for all suretyship in the United States. And that, the Miller Act, requires that anyone doing a government contract provide a performance and payment bond if the contract is over $200,000. Every state since then has passed what they call the Little Miller Act, which is state requirements that anybody doing public work has to provide a performance and payment bond to guarantee that particularly that the sub-suppliers and laborers are paid. And at the same time, a performance bond is required so that if that contractor should default, someone will come in and finish the project so that the government doesn't have multitudes of half-finished projects that they have no more money to finish. So the idea of having a performance and payment bond comes, you know, like I had said, goes all the way back to biblical times and now is statutory and the the payment bond is statutory in every state in the union all 50 states now in order to obtain that guarantee to the performance bond that the project will be complete if the contractor fails and secondly the payment bond that guarantee for third parties subcontractors material and suppliers that they will be paid if the general contractor fails to pay them. You have those two bonds, and my job and the profession that I have is a matter of obtaining what we call surety credit, the ability to get performance and payment bonds for contractors. The best analogy I can give, or the best comparison I can give, is that the underwriting process, or the, the underwriting that a surety company would go through to determine whether a contractor was worthy of that credit is basically the same that you would do that a bank would do to determine whether they were worthy of the line of credit that they were looking for whether they were financially at a level an organization at a level where that could be extended so it comes down to the surety company you come to me or my associates or my competitors and you are a contractor, and you are interested in doing public work. And of course, private entities also, many private entities require performance and payment bonds, principally those that have a bank loaning the money for the project. If you have a $50 million apartment house, and you have Bank of America loaning the money to the developers for it, Bank of America is going to require a performance and payment bond for their single Focused interest is in the payment bond, what we call a lien law bond, 713.23 in the state of Florida, which says that it guarantees that there will not be a lien on that property. So if there are disputes, the subcontractors or, excuse me, material men that are not being paid because of the dispute and put a lien on the project, that lien is actually transferred to the bond so that at the end of the project, Bank of America, no matter how many disputes there are, has a lien-free piece of property that can be, where the financing can be taken over by the, you know, the final uh, lender. So you have a situation where the underwriters that are going to determine whether or not they can provide this product for you are going to look at your balance sheet, your profit and loss sheet, they're going to analyze your financials. You'll be required, in most cases, to get a CPA review or audit at the end of the year. They'll want to look at the personal financial statements of the owners. They don't have to be CPA prepared, but they'll want to know that there are no difficulties from a personal standpoint that may drag on and create issues for the company that they're bonding. In other words, if the, the owners of the company had other business adventures outside of the construction company and were doing developing and they had a development that wasn't working, the surety underwriter is going to say, well, the assumption is is they're going to take money out of the construction company to take care of that project 
and then that's going to dilute the financial statement we were depending on to complete the project. So they'll look at the corporate statement, they'll look at the personal statements, then they're going to look at the organization. They're going to do a deep dive into the organization. They're going to ask you what jobs you've done, give me the five largest jobs you've done, tell me who the owners of the company are, make sure that we've got a complete knowledge of all the owners of the company and that we've got financial information on them. Well, let's uh, do a deep dive into the credit to make sure that there's not been any bankruptcies, that there's not been any issues, that we basically have that functions at a level where there will not be outside issues that could result in a potential default for issues that we don't know about right now once we give a bond. And then, of course, you know, you have asked the contractor, do you have a bank line of credit? We want you to have a bank line of credit because, listen, sometimes owners don't pay on time and you need to have a fallback position. So they'll ask you to get a line of credit. So it's a basic underwriting process where they are looking at the finances of the company. They're looking at the finances of the owners. They're looking at the organizational aspects of the company in great detail. And then they're looking for some third-party fallback such as a bank line, etc. And if all these things come together, the surety company will say, listen, we, we want to partner with this construction company. Credit that we would provide to Lunacon or competitors of Lunacon uh, in the marketplace. Well, thank you for that extensive answer. As you talk, the question comes to mind, these things, you know, people want to grow, get more work, get more work, but there's things that the surety company is looking at, whether to give them or not to give them. Do you think they communicate often or as much as they could to let the, let the company say, you know what, for you to get to this level, you need to make sure that your structure is this way. This is what we're looking for if you want to get to this level. You think that's communicated enough? That's a very perceptive question, and the truth of it is, to a great extent, depends on the broker and depends on the, the way that, that the surety line of credit is handled with that particular contractor. And again, drilling down on your question, what it amounts to is that there is ratio analysis in the surety 101 underwriting process. They're going to look at the balance sheet and they're going to look at the basic ratios, you know, the working capital, the sales to equity, the amount of working capital you have to the amount of credit you want. As an example, in today's underwriting world, it is not uncommon to, for the sureties to take what we call a 5% working capital or a 20 times working capital approach, which means that if you've got a million dollars of working capital, they would be willing to give you $20 million of surety credit on an aggregate basis. Now, the question, Patricia, that you ask is, all right, that's where you are now, but as a contractor, you want to grow and you feel that you have the ability to do so. What is it that you need to do as it relates to your relationship with that surety company or your surety broker to make sure that the avenues of growth and you're depending on having the surety credit to grow are open to you? Like I said, the question is perceptive because at the end of the day, we talk about, you know, the surety 101 underwriting process and, you know, the things that the surety requires and all the checklists that they have in order to get to the point that they want to deal with you. At the point in time when they decide that you are a company they want to deal with, it actually becomes quite subjective. It is surety companies will often move off the reservation from a financial perspective and they want you to be at a 5% working capital, but they'll be willing to dilute that somewhat because of who you are and the communications you've had. So the key to it is for the contractor and the surety company, the underwriters that make the decision to have face-to-face. -face. That's what we as the broker arrange. And when we sit down and talk to our contractors and they are saying, and, 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 and we're looking out of the windshield, and it, too often it's easy for underwriters and brokers and so forth, to sort of underwrite out of the rearview mirror. In other words, this is what you've done, and this is where you've been. But the key to it is to sit down and have that conversation through the windshield and say, all right, where do you want to go? What are the opportunities? And then we have that conversation about what it takes to get there. Because if, uh, if, if the largest job you've ever done is $10 million, 
and you, and you see this perfect job out there for $40 million. There is a way to get there. Now, in the normal underwriting arena, a surety company typically doesn't want to go more than twice as big as the largest job you've done before because they'd say, do you have the experience to do it? But it's, it's one of those things where, we, and we have these discussions often. All right, you tell us, Patricia, why this job makes sense. And when you start with that question and when you have that face-to-face, then 99% of the time, something can be worked out. Because at the end of the day, I mean, the old adage is the surety companies are surviving part of this thing because they're not going to go broke. So you have to take the position that, listen, a contractor's not going to ask for this because this is their life. This is their business. So obviously they see something in this project or this larger program. Maybe the program was set at $100 million and with all the work you see coming up, you're going to have to have capacity to do $150 million. Well, it's the same conversation. Why? Who, do, who have you brought on? I mean, and you could sit down in the conversation and say, well, listen, Chuck, we've, and you tell the underwriter, we just hired this person and this person, here's the resume. They're going to be instrumental in making certain that we can, you know, leap to that next level. But this is, this is something that we do all the time. And that when you, when you realize at the end of the day to be, if I had to, uh, you know, to, 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 to broad brush it, you would say that 30% of the underwriting process, once the initial underwriting has been done, and once you've had that initial underwriting process and you've been accepted as a client, at, from then on, 30% is analytical and 70% is subjective. It's conversation. It's face-to-face. It's, if you've got a plan, you tell us what the plan is. Now, where the process typically does not work that well is where you don't have that conversation first. All of a sudden, you know, things are, you know, working within the limits that you know, we have all laid down and we're all very comfortable with that. And all of a sudden, you've got either a single job or a program way outside of that. The contractor is saying, I want to do this. And that doesn't mean that we can't get there, but it's like expecting a plane to take off at the end of the runway. It doesn't work. You have to get there at the beginning of the runway, have the conversation, tell the surety why, talk to them, manage the process, then your broker will manage the process with the underwriters, will sort of assist in bringing the conversation from the contractor, the surety underwriter, together, and seldom when you approach it on that basis do you not obtain what you need to obtain. So it's, it's a process, and it differs with every company, but you know, it's very doable. Yeah, I agree. And so you will do a really good crop as best as you can, assessment of the risk at the front end. As time evolves and people make decisions, you know, you're not part of the day-to-day conversation of the company, you know. There's a regular meetings, you ask why you want this job. But you know, our industry, I think Emilio uh, Alvarez uh, the other day summarized it really well, saying that our industry is really, it's really more about managing risk and cash flow. Managing cash flow, managing risk. So, you know, we start, I, in my case, I, I was a project manager for MCM, and then I was head of construction for the city of Colombia. One day I said, my kids, I'm a single mom, I want to start a company so that I can be closer to it. That was my, my thought. And a lot of people think that they're going to find more freedom by having their own company, you have a dream, etc. And you become good at doing something for someone, a, techni- a technical person. But you really not handling the whole, the whole operation of a company. So when you start, little by little, you're growing, you're growing. And you know that at some point, as you grow, it's part of business too. You grow, you're successful, and you're growing fast. Now you have a lot of bullets coming at you in different ways, shareable forms. What I'm saying is, it's a risk management business. And so how do you get better at managing risk from the perspective of, of a business owner? Is it, is it the client that you select? Is it your processes? Is it your estimate? Is it your operation? The question is, what three things do you need to avoid in order to, or, or when, a, when a company has 
bad financial outcomes that are preventing you from growing, that are preventing you from obtaining more surety capacity? What do you think happened that shouldn't have happened in your opinion? Well, first of all, the you know the old adage, and it's an old adage because it's, it's like adages that sustain themselves, is true. There is no such thing as a good job. So if there is anything that a construction company that intends to survive needs to do is to understand the people they're working for. And it's not just in the private side. I mean, there are some horrible public owners out there. And your decision to deal with them is multi-layered. As an example, you know, we deal with some very large construction entities. And without naming some of the public obligees, there are certain public entities that pay very poorly. Now, if you're a small emerging contractor, you can't sustain 90-day, 120-day payments. Now, the larger contractor looks at it differently. They have the capital resource to do it, and they know that there is less competition on some of these jobs because the smaller contractors know that they don't get paid, that they can't do it. So they're saying, we can work for this entity, mark up the profits, and make more money, and we're able to sustain the cash flow process. So it's a matter of knowing the owner. And there are owners out there in the private side with a reputation that you just don't. It may sound heavy-handed from our standpoint, but if one of my accounts came to me on a large condominium, uh, and this individual that I'm thinking of were the developer, I'd have to say, listen, I'm, I, you may be upset with me, but I'm going to do you possibly the biggest favor anyone has done and tell you I won't mind it, simply because I know what the result of that will be. And how do I know? Because I've been involved in it. I've seen it before. And obviously, they didn't know who it was. So at the end of the day, number one is you have to know who you're working for. There have been, it's changed over the years, but there have been various estimates that have come down from the surety companies as I make these prognostications as a whole. But there have been years when over 70% of the losses they have had have come from owners not paying the contract. I can't remember of a single loss where at the end of the day, the claims department of the surety company says, you know, too bad. This contractor just didn't know how to build that building. Now, there's no question about it. Certain contractors build more efficiently than others. It's never a matter of technically not being able to do the job. It's a matter of not being able to get paid. Now, that idea of not being able to be paid comes in, it, it, it's very layered. In some cases, the, the municipality or the owner, they do that as a matter of conserving cash, as a process, or just because it is their culture and you know, they're, uh, they're in control of it, and they feel like that at the end of the day, they can get certain benefits by swinging the contract route. That's number one. Number two, it may not be that at all. It may be that the, the, the project was poorly designed. You've got change orders, and change orders are very, very difficult. With some entities on the public side, the change orders that exist through the project can't be negotiated or won't be negotiated until the project is over, until the project is complete. Well, that means that the contractors had to pay for all these change orders all the way, and they may get them, but typically, and a lot of times at the end of the project, particularly on the private side, the, con the owners do what we call the, the 50 cent dance, which they'll negotiate 50 cents on the dollar for you, and you lose it. And then, you know, if you've got scope changes and so forth, that can be, they can be rather significant. When are you going to get paid for them? There are certain public entities that will negotiate change orders at that point in time, Agree for payment and you get paid. So number one is really knowing the owner. And when we say knowing the owner, I guess as much as anything, knowing whether and how you're going to get paid. Absolutely imperative. The second issue that we have, and you know, you, you, you look at some of the problems that exist, you, you know, comes down to a contractor and it's, it's listen, it's the old starving man at a buffet syndrome. If the economy, as an example, has slowed and you've been without work and all of a sudden things start to turn around, there's a lot of work, there is a tendency 
and contractors by their very nature, or they wouldn't be in the business they're in, are optimists. So they'll go out and, as I said, as the starving man at the buffet approach, they will take way too much work. They can't resist the temptation. They've been starving for the last year or two, and now all of a sudden they got the work. So they end up taking more work than the organization can sustain. And there's nothing that will create financial loss quicker than having unattended projects, projects that you don't have the uh, project executives for, that you do not have the people for, that you don't have the sub-base for. So taking too much work is an issue that has you know, created a lot of losses. The third thing, and, and you know, again, you really can't say in the, you know, the discussion that we're having that, you know, X amount percentage losses come from people not being paid. X percentage comes from, from people taking too much work too quickly. Organizations not capable of, of covering. But the third area is uh, when contractors get into areas that they do not really know. And this is an extreme example. A, a vertical contractor, a contractor doing apartment houses, doing condos, decides that there's a lot of engineering work out there, a lot of road work. Or they decide, let's do this, let's start doing site work. Let's start doing other types of work and underestimating their ability to do it, underestimating the cost it takes to get into it, and underestimating their ability to get the people to do it. So it really comes down to knowing who you're working for, having an organization where you have, where you're not stretching the organizational limits, and thirdly, staying in your lane, doing what you know how to do. And if there is reason in those three areas, typically a contractor will be successful year after year. Uh, we use that adage all the time. Many times the project that you didn't get would be the, mo the most profitable project because there are projects that just for whatever reason, listen, when, it, when, when a project goes bad, it's not that the contractor doesn't know how to do it, but there are architects and engineers that have to lay out the basis for doing that project. And there are, uh, and I hate to say it, they're, they're just, I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of terrible surety brokers, but, so I, I, you know, I can't throw egg at anybody else, but there's a lot of terrible architects and engineers. You get one of those jobs, and more often it typically happens in the large engineering, the road contractors, the tunnels, the, the bridges, that type of thing. I, listen, a 40-story building is a 40-story building. I mean, they're all the same, but staying away from projects. And the contractor will generally know when he looks at the, the specs of the job and, and how it has been formatted. And if he sees problems and he says, well, we'll just deal with that with scope changes and change orders, that's where it goes to hell. And some projects, it doesn't matter who's going to do them, it would just be a losing project because of the associated skills of engineers, architects, and others that, uh, that format that project. So let's assume a contractor runs into trouble. They got with the wrong owner. There's change orders that they have had to do the work or they have, or their staff has done the work without an approved change order, and now you have a ton of uh, work performed and not an ability to bill for it because change order hasn't been approved, and there's issues everywhere. There's people issues, all the stuff that you said that you shouldn't do, it's happening. And you are the agent of this company. What do you recommend this contractor do in order to not, if there is in trouble, what should they do? Should they hide it? Should they not communicate with their CPA? Should they not communicate with you? Or should they be open and honest about it? What do you think is the best approach? Because, you know, everyone makes mistakes, and I don't think any of these situations has not happened to any company that has been in business for 20 years. So what is your recommendation? Well, it's one of these situations. At the end of the day, company that either goes out of business or gets in serious problem, runs out of money. That's it. It's that strikeout at the bottom of the ninth. Now, the question is, are there things that they can do to alleviate the problem? Number one, do they have a bank line? Is it a matter of putting more money into the company? To what extent do the owners want to go? 
Do they have personal real estate, property? They want to get a second on their own home. What are their personal resources? It's just a matter of saving the company. So their lives depend on them doing it. The first thing they have to do is to look for sources of capital. But even before they do that, and this is where it becomes difficult because you have what we term these black hole projects where, you know, well, $10 million project looks like they're going to lose a half a million dollars on it. And they're looking at it at 25% through the project, just not going right. Things are not, you know, it's not what we, we bid it poorly or whatever the case is. Then at 50% through the project, well, looks like we're going to lose a million. At 75% of the project, oh, we're going to lose three million. By the time it's over, the four or five million dollar loss, and it's what we call black hole. It just keeps, you know, there is no end to the loss. So it's almost a matter of the contractor when he has a project that he knows he's going to lose on. The first thing you have to do is to sit down with your CPA, your your banker, your people, your 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 organization, and you have to lay this out. Where is the bottom? You know, what do we forecast as the what we call the PML? The Probable maximum loss. What is the PML of this project? Once you do that, and you've got a fair amount of certainty on that, Patricia, then you're going to sit down and you're going to say, here are the resources. Now, you can have a terrible job, but you can have 20 other good jobs, okay? So, first thing you say, well, hate to lose on any job. We're going to make, you know, on all the other jobs that we've got, I think we're going to make $5 million and we're going to lose $4 million on this. Well, terrible to end a year with a million dollar profit when we could have had $5 million profit. But basically what you're doing then is you're not robbing people to pay Paul, but you're using the profits for the other projects are sustaining the loss. And that, if that happens, that happens to contractors all the time. All right, that's not the end of the world. You're not going to go out of business. You figured it out. But the point of it is, and the important point is, that you have assessed it first. You figured it out. You looked at it. Now, like looking at reality as it is. As it is. I am from it. So that's so important to, to know your numbers exactly. and to look at them. And, but, and, and to bring in your professionals instead of your CPA, you sit down with your people. You, you don't necessarily have to sit down with your surety company if there's not going to be a loss on it. In other words, if you think that you can't finish it and the, the owner's going to have to terminate you, then the sooner you bring in the surety. Typically, though, in these situations, that's probably not the case. It's just gonna, you're just going to end up with either a lousier than you want year or a terribly lousy year. Now, if you are at the point in this analyzation process where you, you can't see the end of it and you don't have another profitable work out there, you think to sustain it, do I sell our farm? Do I sell our boat? Do I mortgage our house? You have to then go to the personal assets you've got. And there's no quick answer to this. If you look at all that and you still don't have enough money to finish the project, then you call the bankruptcy attorney. Not much else you can do. There, 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 is, there is a limit. I mean, at that point in time, you would then sit down and try to structure a reorganization and see what you could do. But throughout this process, you've got to determine, knowing the owner and so forth, is there a point in time you can sit down with the owner? But typically, if the owner's got a bond, he's got no incentive to do it. Because if you can't finish it, you've got a bonding company that has all the money to finish it. The bonding company will then, at the point of termination, come in, take over the project. There's a number of approaches that they can take. But they'll finish the project, and they'll pay all of your vendors. And you know, At the end of the day, the owner will get what the owner asked for, and the owner will get what he paid a bond premium for. So there's, in most cases, little incentive for him to do anything to, I mean, why is he going to throw more money into the project to help you because, you know, it's a bad project, etc. Doesn't have to do that. So, but reality is reality, and it happens, and there is a point in time when that call to the bankruptcy attorney has to be made. Okay, so let's turn a turn around. There's so many opportunities in, a, in, in this environment that we live in. It is challenging, it's an industry that requires, it is easy to get into. Construction, you know, you pass a, a, a license, it's not that difficult. But then staying in it, I think, is what's more challenging, and that's where the transformation is, I think. 
it's at least for me, even spirit. Because just sticking with it, you know, and, and developing that resilience and that uh, commitment to see something completed and uh, overcoming uh, challenges and issues is, is transformative. In this environment that we're living, we're in Florida, we have so much work everywhere. It's coming, I mean, in the private sector, the public sector, at the local level, federal level. Yet challenges in uh, suppliers, in the supply chain, challenges with staff, with the environment, you know, we have wars. I love, I always like asking you these questions because you, you always keep a good uh, perspective as to the times we're living and how they affect our industry. So can you elaborate, share with our listeners? Well, these are interesting times because, of course, first of all, you know, going back to your original statement there, it's uh, the construction industry, construction business is a very complicated, multifaceted business. It is not for the faint of heart. Next to restaurants, there are more bankruptcies in the first seven years in the construction business than any other business in the United States. So it's a tough, tough business. As we mentioned, it's, it's multifaceted. And the ability to survive in a business that has more bankruptcies in the first seven years of, of, of the life of that business and any other business except restaurants does take an extraordinary amount of, of management techniques. So the ability to continue to move forward successfully depends now in our current environment under a number of addressing a number of issues that we haven't had to in the past. In my 55 years, I've never seen a time when we have been short of supply. Here in the United States, we are not accustomed to having empty shelves at the supermarket. We are not accustomed to ordering construction materials and having them in short supply. We are not accustomed to having price increases 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent on materials in short periods of time. So managing this process is an extremely difficult process and just adds to the tremendous challenges that contractors have. So in today's marketplace, if you are undertaking a contract to build a building, you have to address one way or another the issue with escalating costs in the project. Now, most private owners don't want to give have an escalation clause in the contract. They want to because of the financing arrangements they have to go through, they want to have some certainty. So a lot of times what we're seeing is contractors uh, entering into cost plus contracts with a GMP, but a heavy layer of contingencies between what they look at the cost factors now and what they are concerned that it might be later so that if those increases do materialize, they have the contingencies. So, I mean, and there are different ways to do it. Now, in the public sector, it depends. If you're working for the FDOT, they have escalation clauses in FDOT contracts. If you're working for other en uh, public entities, they don't. And they don't work on a cost plus with a GMP. So you really have to look at that right now. I mean, there, there will be more financial loss and more potential bankruptcies in the construction industry over the next three to four years based upon the escalating increase in materials and supplies and anything else. Plus, contractors are continuing to face this lack of personnel. We just don't have enough people. And, you know, during the 70s, uh, I can remember they had a number of very successful vocational schools in South Florida, but we went into that phase from, a, I guess, a, a national view of what brings us success Everyone needed to get a four-year college degree. And it didn't matter whether what the college degree was in, just get a four-year college degree. So we had decades in which vocational training for these individuals that we, for the MEPs, for the, the, the laborers, for the structural people, were not in place. So at this point in time, and the thing that concerns me more than anything else, and it should concern every contractor down here, when you're looking at plumbing, electrical, and HVAC, do you realize that the average age of those techs, and some of these techs 
I mean, you have to be, you know, you have a long apprenticeship plus to get to the point that you are really at a level, that's right, that you need to be to accommodate the projects. You need another 10 years. The average age in South Florida is over 55 years of age. So you look at it and you think that we've got problems with laborers and some of the others. Where do we get all of the techs in the MEP area of construction? Because this is where the technical ability is. So we are facing some long-term, very, very difficult issues. We have construction and economy. Uh, last year, the fastest growing city in the nation was Miami, over 30% growth. And, you know, we have tremendous amount of building going down here and we don't see any, uh, you know, there is, you know, it's not going to level out. It's all about the demographics. If you look at the situation and the demographers have basically said that Florida will grow in raw population in the next 20 years faster than any state in the union. We're not going to catch California and Texas, but we're going to close the gap. California has 38 million people. Texas has 27 we have 22 to 23 million people. Those that are the demographers that are looking at this are saying, these are the population trends. This is where people are going to go. There are a couple of studies, and one of them said that uh, at least 15% of the baby boomers will end up in Florida in the next 20 years. The other said 30% of the baby boomers will end up in Florida in the next 30 years. Well, let's do the math. There's 74.6 million baby boomers. That's 1945 to 1965. That's where the trillions of dollars of, of pension funds, 401ks, and, and wealth is. That's where the wealth is. If 30% of the baby boomers in the next 20 years move to Florida, do the math. 30% of 74.6 million people is 20-some million. That doubles our population. It is impossible for us to build enough infrastructure to accommodate that many people. So... Our issues are multifaceted. If you're, in the, if you're a contractor, you have your work cut out for you because, number one, there is not going to be a lack of opportunity to get work, but, you know, you've got issues with the supply chain. You will have increasing issues finding the people to do the work. And as a general contractor, which Patricia is, your subcontractors are the ones that have to man the jobs and... If they can't, if the electrical contractors can't find electrical, uh, new electricians when their 55-year-old electrical associates are retiring or with the HVAC or with the plumbing, what do you do? So we have a number of issues to overcome. It sounds good when you say that we will grow faster and we will probably be the single, Florida will be the single best construction market in the entire United States. That all sounds good. But at the same time, as a contractor in this marketplace, you have to have the ability to facilitate the challenges that will come to you when you look at some very difficult problems that are in place now and that are just over the horizon. And what do you do? I mean, the opportunities are there and to get young people into our industry, it's easier said than done. Well, even though it can provide a good living, a very good living for you. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. So changing a little bit more on topic. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. I really admire you a lot and your level of knowledge and how good, how you have prioritized your health. I say that because our industry is not an industry where people in it really prioritize health. On the contrary, Every day we go out there to solve challenges, not necessarily in the best working environment, the best culture, because there's so much involved, so many involved, and people don't take enough good care of them. Moreover, the iron industry is the second highest rate of suicide. So that has to do a lot of you know, the mental side of it, how you take care of yourself. And I am going to ask you how old are you? I know how old are you, but if you want to share. What have you done to keep yourself the way, not only your body, but your mind? Again, you know, I'm 79 this year, so I'm not no spring chicken. But first of all, it starts off with some good genes. And 
that's not the answer to it, but, you know, there are people who have, even at young age, difficult uh, physical issues that they have to face, and uh, some of them are genetic. Uh, you know, there are folks who I've uh, got friends whose mother and father died in their mid-50s of heart failure, and they have heart issues right now, and they're early 60s, and they have to deal with things that I didn't, because I didn't have any of those genetic issues. On the other hand, there's a genetic component to this. There are people who like to exercise and like to physical activity, and there are folks that do not. And again, I have, we've got a very large family, and I see it in the kids. All the kids are not the same that way. Some of them really enjoy it, and if you enjoy it, you do it. I enjoy it. You know, we have a very nice home in South Florida. We raised seven kids, and we had a large home, and Instead of selling it when, you know, had an empty nest for the last 25, 30 years, but, you know, we remodeled and made it ours. So I have, to answer the question, I have, through the remodeling process, I have a gym that, in the house, that practically rivals LA Fitness in the amount of equipment that I have. So I enjoy it. I use it. I think it's extremely important. I probably overdo it to a certain extent, but if I want to get really personal, I exercise very briskly, very hard, three hours every day, seven days a week. From six to nine, that's my time, my gym. I don't allow anybody, I don't work with anybody else, but it's right there in my home. There is not much that, if anything, LA Fitness has that I don't have. So it's extremely well equipped, and I enjoy doing it. I enjoy the processes, I supplement, whether I do it wisely, I probably overdo it, but again, it's all part of the process. So I have been extremely fortunate from a physical standpoint. Frankly, at my age, I've never had a physical and never taken a prescription, never had an issue. Can't remember the last time I was sick, never get tired. So whatever it is, you know, I'm very grateful. But anyway, it's something that is important. And when you, particularly as you age, it is impossible to be happy when you are terminally ill or when you are very ill. So at the point in time when you know, you have issues, whether it's cancer, whether it's heart disease, whether it's, you know, I have a good friend that has kidney issues, and you can just go down the list. Their lives end up centering around those physical issues they have. So if you can avoid them, it's good to do it, and I think putting the effort into doing that is absolutely at the top of everybody's list, because, and particularly when you get to my age, the first thing that it seems like that I talk about with my friends who are my age is how you're feeling. <laughs> and if they've got some physical condition, you, know, you always have that conversation to begin with. So maintaining your health is at the top of the list. So I, I believe it's all about rituals. And you know, we, some people call it discipline. But the ritual, the little things that you do every day for you, now you're exercising 30 hours a day. I don't know if three that hours. was three hours. I don't know if that was the case all your life. I know you were Three hours when didn't work when we were raising our kids. I mean, I, I always had access to facilities and, and, and frankly, do most of my life with exercise. But, you know, when you got kids in school, you know, I can't, I couldn't do what I'm doing now. I've gone through the phases that a lot of people have. I went through years ago, of course in the 80s, I got on the uh, Atkins and I felt really good in the Atkins diet, it worked very well. But then, you know, society and we went into a phase nationally where we went into the low fat and, you know, the cholesterol issues and I don't believe the cholesterol story at all, so that's another subject. But anyway. So you started on the no fat. I would be lying if I didn't say that I got swooped up in some of these as time went on because most of the literature was written, centered around that, and it was justified. I went through, at one point in time, a vegetarian phase. I'm so happy that I'm not there anymore. But anyway, you do that. But at the end of the day, it comes down to now, and you know, if we have, if I have the privilege of sitting with you five years from now, maybe we'll have a different discussion, but I don't think so. It really comes down to the, you know, when our digestive, over the four million years that our digestive systems have evolved, what have they evolved to digest and how does it work? Well, first thing that you understand is, is that, you know, if you want to go back 
and this is probably beyond the discussion you want, but the hunter-gathering hunter stage, you ate what you killed, and every day you did not eat. In other words, our digestive systems and this three-meal-a-day regime that we have is what kills us, even if you eat pretty well. Why do you need three meals a day? You should be hungry most of the time. Eating is not fasting. You, Yes, fasting is excellent, and I practice it. Now, not as often as I probably should, but it is something that you should do. But we stuff ourselves with too much food, first of all. So I try to restrict as much as possible the amount I eat, and, and you should be hungry most of the time. And then what would I eat if I were eating according to where our systems evolve? Mainly meat. I try to stay away from uh, all, all sugars and, and, and starches. I'm not, you know, carbohydrates. Stay away from carbohydrates. Yeah, it does. And, and you know, of course, the lower glycemic carbs are better than the higher glycemic. So I'll stay completely away from the higher glycemic. If I have it, it's the lower glycemic. Heal over tomorrow. I, I get that. I'm not being... You know, I don't want to be boastful, boastful or pretentious about it, but I always feel good. So whatever I'm doing, I continue to do simply because it appears to me. Who knows? Tomorrow. Thank you so much. I have a hundred more questions that I can ask you. But I'm very grateful for, for your share. I'm very grateful for the level of passion that you have and this desire to continue to help people, even though you don't have to work one more day in your life. You don't have to. But you choose to do it every day because you love and you love the relationships that you play. I do that, yes. So that in itself is a huge example of why it's so important to live a life that is mission-driven, it's got a purpose behind it. I appreciate it, and I do appreciate the opportunity. I wish you continued success. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Thriving in Construction, the podcast with Patricia Benilia. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any suggestions or any related topics you would like us to tackle in our future episodes, feel free to reach Patricia by sending her a message through the website, anchor.fm slash construction, or find her on LinkedIn. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week here in Thriving in Construction, the podcast. Mm-hmm.